0: Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church podcast coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join Pastor Neil Effa as he preaches part one in his series on spiritual vital signs with this message from March 3rd titled, Faith That Puts You to Work.
1: There are four main vital signs the medical community uses to assess the health of an individual. Those four vital signs include the measurement of body temperature, respiratory rate, heart rate, and blood pressure. And these four measurements provide critical information about a patient's state of health. Now, obviously I'm not a doctor. However, I did read that when a person is taken to hospital, if the initial vital signs are normal, subsequent vital signs would be taken every four hours for the first 24 hours after admission. On the other hand, if any of the four vital signs are abnormal, physicians will evaluate the patient every 30 minutes. Now again, these measurements are taken to help assess the general physical health of a person, give clues to possible diseases, and show progress toward recovery. As I contemplated that, it led me to wonder, if there are vital signs that measure one's physical health and well-being, are there vital signs that we can use to measure one's spiritual health and progress? And I think that there are. I would suggest to you this morning that there are three vital signs that literally jump off the pages of the New Testament by which our spiritual health can be measured. They form a comprehensive way to assess our Christian living. They are standards by which we can mark our spiritual progress. The most well-known appearance of this trilogy of spiritual markers is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. Paul closes this famous chapter in the Bible by naming three vital qualities that endure. And he writes, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And this grouping of faith, hope, and love might seem random if it did not appear so many other times in the New Testament. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul gives thanks to God in prayer for the Ephesians' faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. And then in verse 18, prays that they may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints. This trio of virtues show up again in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. Here we read, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Peter adopts this measure of maturity as well in his first epistle. Here we read, He, in reference to Jesus In chapter 10, verses 22 to 24, the following charge is given. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This is not incidental. It is very intentional. The apostles hold up these three as criteria for measuring how an individual and how a church is really doing. Sometimes we use, as Reggie McNeil would say, the wrong scorecard or the wrong markers when it comes to measuring our spiritual progress and our maturity. More than attendance records or how big the budget is, more than how many and how freely the spiritual gifts are practiced, these three qualities reveal whether a church or a Christian is spiritually on track, or whether or not they're wavering. But the passage where this becomes most clear is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. In these opening lines to the church in the city of Thessalonica, Paul converts these spiritual markers into measurable standards. To these Thessalonian believers who had turned from idols to worship the one and true living God, Paul said, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In these verses, Paul uses descriptors for these three qualities. It is the work of faith. It is a labor of love. It is a steadfastness of hope. This morning we're asking the Holy Spirit to give us an assessment of the first vital sign concerning our spiritual health and progress. The vital sign of faith. Faith that puts you to work. We might call it faith work. It is work which springs from, is accomplished by, and reveals faith. Paul commended the Thessalonian believers for their work of faith. If it were not for the presence of living faith within their hearts... This work would not have been in evidence. Someone once said, faith is like calories. You can't always see them, but you can always see their results. Isn't that true? In other words, genuine faith produces genuine works. To explore this further, I'm going to have us turn to James Epistle, because this is a major theme resounding and resonating throughout his writings. But before we do so, there's one issue that needs clarification. When it comes to this matter of faith that puts us to work, some individuals see a contradiction between James' words and Paul's words. James, in chapter 2, verse 24 of his epistle says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. But Paul, on the other hand, in the book of Romans writes For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, at first glance, they do seem to be contradicting each other, don't they? However, there are at least three important differences between the words that Paul wrote and the words that James wrote. First, it is important to understand that there is a difference in emphasis between Paul and James. Paul stresses the root of salvation, which is faith in Christ Jesus plus nothing else. James calls attention to the fruit of our salvation. That which takes place in our life after we come to Christ. Like branches on a vine, every believer rooted in Christ by faith will bear fruit. Paul talks about the root. James talks about the fruit. A second contrast between Paul and James is perspective. Paul looks at life from God's perspective, while James looks at life from a human perspective. To help us understand this matter of perspective, Charles Swindoll uses this illustration. He writes, Paul sees a fire in the fireplace, while James' eyes the smoke coming out of the chimney. To James, the world should be able to tell that a faith burns in our hearts by the works they see coming out in our lives. Paul and James approach the matter of faith and works from different perspectives. And the third contrast, and perhaps the most important one, is the difference in terms. Both Paul and James uses the same word justified, but with two different meanings. When Paul mentions justification, he means the act of God at salvation, whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous while still in a sinning state. James, on the other hand, uses it to mean validate or to give evidence. In other words, James is saying that we justify or prove our faith by our works. Commentator W.H. Griffith Thomas brings these two ideas together in a very clear way. He says, it has been well said that St. Paul and St. James are not soldiers of different armies fighting against each other, but soldiers of the same army fighting back-to-back against enemies coming from opposite directions. I think that's a good way of putting it, a good way of helping us see it. And so I hope this clarifies the issue for you. Paul and James are not contradicting one another. Rather, their words and their teaching actually dovetail together and support each other. So with that clarification in mind, I'm going to have you turn to chapter 2 in James Epistle, and we're going to read verses 14 to 19 as we consider the first vital sign concerning our spiritual health, faith that puts us to work. James writes, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can this kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you do not give them what the body needs, what good is it? So also faith, if it does not have works, is dead being by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one, well and good. Even the demons believe that and tremble with fear. In these verses, James is reminding us that saving faith in Jesus Christ is living and it's active. It is reflected in our deeds and in our works. However, not everyone reflects such a living and active faith. In the passage, he contrasts insincere faith with sincere faith. He begins his discussion about faith and works with a question. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? The only answer to that question is a negative one. It does no good to claim to have faith when a man has no faith at all. James is being specific here. He doesn't say if a man has faith. He says if a man claims to have faith. James implies that the faith of this particular individual is not genuine trust in Jesus Christ. In fact, this man's claim to faith is hollow. It is hollow and it's a self-confident boast. Do you hear what James is saying? He is telling us it is possible to claim to have faith, to claim to have a faith that saves, and yet to have no faith at all. If anyone makes any sort of claim, there has to be some basis for it. For example, if someone claims to be a graduate, there has to be a genuine signed diploma from the school of which they graduated, proving that they met the requirements of graduation. A fraudulent diploma printed from a website just doesn't do. And James is saying that genuine saving faith is not found in empty and hollow claims. A person can say anything that they want. But it doesn't really make a difference unless that faith produces fruit. You can tell if faith is present based upon whether or not fruit is present. There is a dangerous deception to claim to have faith, but in reality to have no faith at all. A man or a woman may point to a time when they walked an aisle, when they raised a hand, when they signed a card, when they prayed a prayer regarding salvation. But if after doing so, there is no change in their character or their conduct, it does bring into question their salvation. Although they may profess to have been saved by the grace and mercy of God, if there is no fruit, if there is no outflow of grace and mercy from their life to the lives of others, They are simply deceived. And deceptive faith is to claim you have faith in Christ. With no evidence of that faith flowing from your life. But James has much more to say about insincere faith. Listen to what he writes in verses 15 to 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed. And lacks daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well. But you do not give them what the body needs. What good is it? So also faith, if it does not have works, is dead being by itself. Did you take notice of verse 17? So also faith, if it does not have works, is dead being by itself. To emphasize this point, James uses an illustration. And the illustration, when you actually stop and look at it, it borders on the ludicrous. He overstates the point that he wants to make in using this this, uh, illustration. And his purpose for overstatement is to emphasize the drastic condition and the need of the one who requires help. This person doesn't just have a mild case of need. He is desperate. He is without clothes, almost naked, and without daily food. And James frames the story in such a way that we are forced to see Ourselves as the one from whom help is requested. In other words, James frames it in such a way that the reader understands that if they don't help this person, that person's life is in jeopardy. So imagine hearing your doorbell ring. It's a cold, frigid January day. You open the door and you discover a person on your doorstep with barely enough clothing to cover him. He is freezing. And he, is literally, he literally has no food for the day, no means to obtain food. He is starving, shamed, cold, miserable, and hungry. He stands before the open door. And you are looking him in the eye. What would you do in that moment? That's the kind of scenario James is setting up for us here. Would you send him away knowing that he would succumb to frostbite? Doing so would be like saying to him, Go in peace, keep warm, well fed. That's a phrase that James uses in this illustration. Now, in the original language of the New Testament, there are two possible translations to that phrase. One translation is, get some warm clothes and eat your fill. Now, how ludicrous would that be to say something like that to someone who is cold and who is hungry? Be warm and feed yourself. How would that even be possible for the individual to do that? The other interpretation is that the person to whom this unfortunate individual has come to for help, expects someone else to feed and clothe them. Perhaps he even points them to someone else from where they can receive that help, points them to a government agency. Simon Kistemaker in his commentary on James writes, I see the remark, go, I wish you well. Summarized in the popular saying, God helps those who help themselves. That is, let the shivering, hungry brother and sister pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Keep warm and well fed. If the poverty-stricken brother and sister would only exert themselves. They would have plenty to eat and sufficient clothing to wear. And God would bless them. Obviously, James is saying the person who thinks this way is not thinking biblically. This individual is not expressing and demonstrating true faith if that is what occupies their mind. But such responses are not uncommon today. How often have you heard someone say regarding the poor and marginalized? If they would just get a job or it's not, it's a government's responsibility to take care of them. Or rather than personally getting involved themselves in offering care, they simply send the needy individual to someone else to another agency, to another church, to another person, and in so doing, wipe their hands of any responsibility in terms of meeting the needs of that person. The implication is very clear in the illustration James is using. There is no way this individual has faith because there's no fruit. Because there is no mercy toward the poor, it is clear evidence that there is no faith. Now, I want to be clear here. Acts of mercy are not means of salvation. Rather, acts of mercy are necessary evidence of salvation. They are a natural overflow and outflow of our salvation. James is not talking about deeds in the sense of earning favor before God. He's talking about deeds as a fruit of faith in God. And there is a big difference between the two. And mercy toward the helpless is evidence of God's mercy in our heart. If the gospel of God, the gospel of grace has transformed our heart, then when we see someone in need, we will do something about it. It'll be impossible for us to close our eyes to what they are going through. Tim Keller pastors a church in New York City. The church is involved in numerous mercy ministries throughout that city and around the world. And he wrote this. He said, mercy to the full range of human, emo- of human needs is such an essential mark of a Christian that it can be used as a test of true faith. Let me repeat that. Mercy to the full range of human needs is such an essential mark of a Christian that it can be used as a test of true faith. Mercy is not an optional addition to being a Christian, Rather, a life poured out in deeds of mercy is a sign of genuine faith. If there is no mercy toward the needy, then there is no faith. Acts of mercy are evidence of salvation. Action is a proper fruit of living faith. Because life is dynamic and productive, faith that lives will surely produce a fruit of good deeds. Therefore, if no good deeds are forthcoming, it is proof that the professed faith is dead. James doesn't deny that it is faith. He simply indicates that it's not the right kind of faith. It's not a living faith, nor can it save. But further reading in our text, James points to another sign of insincere faith. In verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one, well and good. Even the demons believe that and tremble with fear. What James does here is he identifies intellectual faith. An intellectual assent to the truths of the gospel without any commitment to those truths. The individual James describes has an impressive knowledge of God's word. Their theology is impeccable. But as James says, they believe God is one. Just like it says in Deuteronomy 6.4. And every good Jewish man and woman knew Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. But James once again reminds us that faith is not mere intellectual assent to the truths of the gospel. How does James respond to this type of person? He says, wonderful. If faith is only intellectual, then join the hands of demons. Because they too have they're religious facts straight. however, they are still demons. We can know all the religious facts we want, but until we are rooted in Christ, evidenced by bearing fruit, we're no more Christian than the demons. Consider all that the demons believe. Demons believe in the existence of God. Demons believe in the deity of God of Christ. Demons believe in the presence of heaven and hell. Demons believe that Christ is the eternal judge. Demons believe that only Christ is able to save. Demons believe all of those things. And so is it possible that countless men and women have adopted a faith that consists only of intellectual assent to the truth of God and Christ? Faith is not mere intellectual consent. Nor is faith just an emotional response to the gospel. Because even the demons have an emotional response when it comes to God. James says even the demons believe and what do they do? They shudder. They tremble. The Greek term for shudder suggests a rough, uneven surface. What happens when you have a rough, uneven surface on your arm? You have the goosebumps. They are emotionally affected by the reality of God. James' point is that faith involves willful obedience. We are to show our faith, not just by what we know or how we feel, but by what we do. Faith acts. Let me emphasize. James is not saying, and I am not saying, that what we believe in our minds and what we feel in our hearts is not important. Our emotions and our intellect are extremely important. But if faith is limited to our intellect, limited to our emotions, and void of willful obedience, then it's not faith. Why? Because faith acts, and if it doesn't act, then it is dead. Well, James hasn't minced any words when it comes to insincere faith. However, he doesn't stop here. He also describes a sincere faith. And this is precisely the point James makes in verse 18. He said, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works. And I will show you faith by my works. That word show means to bring to light, to display, to exhibit. In other words, do your best to show me your faith without using works. And I will demonstrate my faith by my works. And we will then see which one of us has the genuine thing. James' implication is that faith cannot be demonstrated apart from action. Faith is an attitude of the inner man, and it can only be seen as it influences the actions of the one who possesses it. Mere profession of faith proves nothing as to its reality. Only action can demonstrate faith's genuineness. And that's why James asserts, I will show you my faith by what I do. There's a tendency to divorce works from faith. However, we delude ourselves if we think it doesn't matter whether we evidence our faith or not. James' whole point is that if it doesn't show, you don't have it. This aligns with the teaching of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 7, when he warned against false teachers, he said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. How do you recognize an apple tree? You recognize an apple tree when you see apples hanging on its branches. And the same is true of a pear tree, a grapefruit tree, a cherry tree. It is impossible to separate faith from works. Genuine faith is displayed to genuine works. The vital sign of faith was evident amongst these Thessalonian believers. They had turned from idols to serve the true and living God. And as a result, Paul commended them for their spiritual health and for their spiritual maturity. In a similar way, we must realize that we too, are created in Christ Jesus for good works. When we turned from idols to follow the true and living God, we chose a path that God had prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The path of good works, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Since we belong to Christ, who purchased us with his blood, he has full authority over our life. There are specific tasks we are appointed to accomplish as we walk according to his will. And if we think believing in Christ means simply attending a church on Sunday or holding to some theological tenets of the faith, but living as we please all week long, we're really wasting our lives. And so let me conclude with this thought this morning Christians are the people through whom the Holy Spirit is carrying out the work of Christ on earth. He redeemed us from sin. And purified us for himself so that we could be people zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. The vital sign of our spiritual health and progress. Faith, hope, and love. This morning we talked about faith. Faith that puts us to work. Faith that is lived out in the things that we do, in the things that we say in the actions we undertake. And so we go from here this morning, seeking to display those works that would bring attention to our God, whom we serve, the one who is worthy of all glory and honor. Would you bow as I pray? Father, this morning we heard very clearly from James what it means to Be people who strive to do good good works. Who puts our faith to work. And so, Father, I pray that we would not be content where we presently are. But I pray that from the overflow of the grace and mercy that you have extended to us through Jesus, when we placed our faith in him, that our lives would be overflowing with love and mercy to those around us. So, Father, we leave from here this morning. Understanding that we are sent people, sent to live out our faith, showing the fruit of our salvation in Jesus Christ,
0: in whose name I pray, Amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash TBC Swan River. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Temple Baptist Church or search on your favorite podcast app.